This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture reading for today is found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and can be found on page 983 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Hello again. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, hey, if you were, I'm just going to jump right in. If you were, if you were with us last week, we talked about a few different things out of our text, and I'm going to I'm going to recap just a couple of those. We talked about rejoicing in the midst of suffering. We talked about how Christ is the mystery that's no longer a mystery; He's no longer hidden. We talked about a goal of Christian maturity in the Christian life. And lastly, we highlighted the intense effort that is aligned with the grace of God in your life. The flow of Paul's communication to this church is that first he gives thanks and then he encourages them. And then he scales a mountain, the mountain of Christ's preeminence. Gratitude in the Christian life, sturdiness in the Christian life. Maturity in the Christian life comes from nowhere else other than the acknowledged and apprehended and delighted in preeminence of Jesus Christ. And our series title, Christ Over All, aims to capture that, aims to remind us of that week after week. So throughout the rest of the book, we should not forget verses 15 to 20. From chapter one. It's the compass of this letter. It'll always orient you or it will reorient you if you've veered off of course. We need to remember the words of Paul in places like 1 Corinthians 3 11, where he says that no one, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It makes me think of a, of a, of a, of a thought picture of someone laying a foundation for a house, right? You don't truck in boatloads of sand and pour it on top of that concrete foundation before you start building your house. 
You don't lay another foundation on top of the only foundation that's sturdy and real and solid and is lasting. It makes me think of our, our series in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew where Jesus says, he who, he who hears what I'm saying and does what I'm saying will be like a man who builds a house on the rock where the storms come and the rain pours and it beats against the house and the house doesn't fall. But if you hear this and you don't do what I say, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand and the rain comes and the storm comes and the house topples and great is the fall of it. You see, the Colossians will encounter false teaching and false teaching is sand. And to try to live your life by adding to what Christ has done for you or said to you, to live your life that way is pouring sand on top of an already solid and sturdy foundation. And then building on that and acting mystified when that house falls over. Christ is preeminent. Christ is the only firm foundation and all Christian maturity will be built on top of him and his word or else it's sand and will erode from underneath you when the storm comes. It's powerful for me this week to think about Colossians through that lens, to think about the phrase even, rock bottom. Someone might say that an addict might need to hit rock bottom before real change can occur. And I don't know about everyone else in this room, but I know that in my life, God sends the storm to wash away the shifting sand that I might have grown to love or accustomed to, or I might be grasping onto. He'll send lightning and thunder and rain to wash out from underneath of me whatever I've tried to build on that isn't Christ. God has had to pry open my grip sometimes on idols through suffering or pain or loss or just the normal challenges of life. And he does that because he loves me. He does that because he loves you. He does that to be merciful to you. And when the sand is finally washed away, when you've finally given up on our own arrogant ideas or our own individual strategies, then in a profound act of mercy, you can fall and hit rock bottom and land on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. Then you can start to build and you don't have to go again looking for buckets of sand to build with. Look to Christ. Like we sang this morning, look to Jesus. Has Christ saved you? Then stop building with the sand of health, wealth, and prosperity. Has Christ plucked you from the fire? Then stop scrambling for power and prestige and prominence. Those things are sand and they can't be a foundation for you to build on. And as much as it might even sting this morning, don't build on the love of your spouse or the love and devotion that you have toward your own kids. They can't be the foundation of your life. Stop building your identity in your vocation or in your work or even in your work ethic. None of those things can be a foundation for you. They're sand. They can't be sturdy enough to hold up a life. And Paul throughout Colossians is hard pressed to ensure that these believers are building with the right materials, that they're building with materials that last. 
I know what it feels like to have God erode the sand in my own life so that the only thing left for me is to cast myself on to the mercy of Christ. And friends, I know what it feels like to come face to face with rock bottom. I've been cut down in my life. I've been toppled. And God did that because he loves me that much. God won't let us be comforted by false comfort. He won't let you have your pet sins that will kill you. He won't let you build a sandcastle that'll wash away. He's set our feet upon a rock, the only foundation, the only refuge, the only safe space, the only stronghold, the only garrison for your soul. So before I jump into the specifics of our text this morning, would you all join me and pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us see the places that we're tempted to shift from the foundation that's been laid in Christ. Would you all join me? Join me as I pray. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning to cut us open and do surgery. Man, we invite you, we invite you to cut out cancer or sickness, things in our soul that maybe we don't want to let go of. We invite you to come and shine light on it and expose it, make us aware of it, give us conviction and cut it out. No matter how much it hurts, good physician, good physician, would you take your scalpel and cut us for our good, for our healing, for our health? Holy Spirit, would you come and comfort those in this room who are wobbly this morning? Would you make them sturdy in you? Holy Spirit, would you come and strengthen faith this morning? Would you bolster hope in the gospel this morning? And would you sink down deeper into our hearts and lives the revelation of Jesus Christ? Would you sink it down deeper? Would you make us see you better and deeper and richer and fuller and more powerful in every single aspect of our lives? Let no corner of our lives be off limits to your transforming work in our lives, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I want you to know, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts would be encouraged. I want you to know how great a struggle I have that your hearts would be encouraged. Last week, I aim to unpack just several verses, several uh, statements from the Apostle Paul, and this week I'm going to do the same. I'm going to try to unpack a few phrases from our text and the implications that come out of it. And the first one I want to talk about is Paul's struggling for these believers. The second one is that there is an encouragement that he wants deeply for these believers. 
And that, that, that encouragement splits in two different ways or it has two sides of one coin and that's to be knit together in love and knit together in understanding and assurance in the gospel. Then number three, it all comes through Christ so that number four, we don't have to be deluded. We don't have to be deceived. So first, Paul has a struggle for this church. And my first observation about this dynamic is that the family of God struggles for each other. Struggles for each other. And I want to drive home four dynamics of Christian struggling. Number one, this struggling is the struggling of an athletic competition, okay? This isn't the kind of struggling that my daughter struggles in when she's trying to set the table for dinner. It is active and awake and aggressive. It is driven. Athletes put in, or they pay insane costs to get what they're after. Paul says elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the struggle for the church is a struggle that we have for one another, for brothers and sisters in this room. If we want to imitate Paul, we should pay costs in our body for the sake of the body, the church. And that isn't a ploy to get you to serve on Sundays or to put more money in the plate. It's an invitation to cultivate a loving, interested disposition in the development and growth of the people that you see week in and week out. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We live in an age when people are obsessed with bodily training. And bodily training takes planning, right? It takes scheduling and routines and tons of sacrifice. If you decide, if you decide tomorrow that you want to run a marathon and not die, <laughs> right? then you are going to schedule a training regimen that's like six months out, at least. And then all the normal routines of your life will all be rearranged around that one goal, that one routine, that one thing that you're aiming for. And the apostle in our text today says, hey, I moved my life and energy in a direction the same way that athletes do to see you grow up and mature in Christ. I've got a training schedule with rigorous routines, all just to see you encouraged and built up and strengthened in faith. And that's what Christians do. They struggle for one another. The second aspect or dynamic around this struggling is that we should have a prize in our minds that we're fixated on. Paul explains to us how he struggles in places like 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, I don't, I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as a, as a man beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We're all struggling for something. Even, even the drunk is struggling and planning and scheming to get their buzz or to find ways to avoid the responsibilities that sobriety demands. And Paul 
doesn't live his spiritual life aimlessly. He lives intentionally. If you asked him a why question, he'd have a why spiritual answer ready and waiting. And we all know what it feels like to have someone ask us a why question and find out that we have little or zero answer to give. Why, why do you discipline the, your kids the, the way that you do? What went into that thinking? Or why don't you? Why do you live where you do or engage your family or engage your neighbors the way that you do? Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you even show up week after week after week? Why do you sing worship songs? Why do you spend your money the way that you do? Intentionality in the Christian life defends against drifting and coasting and veering off course. Your struggles and efforts and energies are going to drift and no one drifts upstream. When we're drifting, the world, our flesh, and the devil, our three traditional enemies in the Christian faith, will be the ones trying to steer the ship and they don't aim upstream, ever. Pastor and author John Piper once said it this way. He said, hey, there's no neutral in the gearbox of the Christian life. There's no treading water. If you tread water in a river, you're going downstream. If you, if you just set your life on autopilot, it will veer towards apathy and destruction. So where are you aiming your life? What's the course it's on, whether by coasting or by intentionally aiming? What purpose does it have? Does it have a focus? Where are you aiming your focus? Because if you aren't choosing the focus of your life, your flesh is, is going to fill that spot. If you aren't choosing your focus, the world is. If you aren't choosing the focus and direction of your life, the devil will try to get that seat. So ask yourself this morning, what centers me? What directs me? What puts blinders on my life and sets a course for me? What, what comforts me? What stabilizes me when the storm comes? It's a huge question. What do, what do you have in your life? What do you use to, to heal or cope with pain or loss or even just the normal challenges of life? And if you haven't chosen to make that Jesus, then your flesh will jump in the driver's seat and grab the wheel and try to steer you off a cliff every time. A third point about Paul's struggle is that it takes vigilance. It takes vigilance. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to eat seeking someone to devour. The sober-minded, watchful believer is vigilant and awake and ready. Paul's struggle is the struggle of a man who's poised to outperform the competition. 
He's not, he's not going to get blindsided, which happens to us all the time. You see, verses like don't be surprised, verses in the Bible like don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you is in there because we get surprised, right? It's in there for a reason. It's in there to help us. A competitive athlete isn't surprised when his opponent makes a move on him. He isn't surprised when his strategies encounter resistance. Are you trying this morning to, to lead your family? Don't be surprised when during devotions, all hell seems to break loose. Are you trying to guide your children? Have you made some commitments maybe to, to reassess and improve a more loving and thorough and consistent discipline in your life? Don't be surprised if it gets worse before it gets better. Are you trying to be more generous? Don't be surprised if more demands come on your finances and they show up out of nowhere. You see, the world and the flesh and the devil are on the offensive constantly. All you have to do is sit down and coast. Your flesh is opportunistic. It knows just when to attack. It takes vigilance to struggle. And it takes vigilance to struggle for a goal, for the good, for the good especially of those around us, those that are a part of our spiritual family, part of our church. And that brings me to my fourth observation about Paul's struggle, what it means to struggle as a Christian. It has a biblical vision for the flourishing of other believers, other people. The Christian struggle has a Christian vision for the good, a Christian vision for maturity, a Christian vision for the flourishing of those around us. To struggle the way that Paul struggles is to have an idea of what in the world we're struggling for. That's why it won't do to treat the church like a country club or an AA meeting or a charity. There's so much more at stake in the journey of the Christian life. And I want to point that out this morning by inviting us to consider this question. What do you want for one another? What, what do you want for, for me or for the pastors of this church or for the, the staff members of this church? What do you want for the brothers and sisters that you sit next to and that you covenant with in this church to live alongside? What do you long to see happen for your wife or for your husband, or for your roommate? What do you long for, for your coworkers? What do we want for each other? Do we know? Or do we find ourselves ambivalent to the flourishing of other people in this church? Do we find ourselves amb ambivalent to the growth of other people or the maturity of the other people that we sit next to about their development or their relationship with God. Ambivalent, ambivalent means that you could take it or leave it. You could go either direction. Just like the word ambidextrous means you can be dexterous with both hands. Ambivalent means hey, I could go that way or I could go this way. doesn't matter to me. Do we care about the direction of our brothers and sisters' lives? 
Do we care about the direction of the covenant members of this church, of this spiritual household, of the spiritual lives of the people that we sit next to? Or could we go either direction? And we're not really sure if we care what direction their lives go. Or are we invested, invested in their growth and maturity and development? Are we invested in the development of the other people in this place who've covenanted to live together as one body? Paul knows what he wants for these believers, both their ultimate good and their immediate growth and encouragement. And that leads to point number two. There's an encouragement that he longs for for these people. Verse two reads, that their hearts may be encouraged. I want you to know how strong of a struggle I have that your hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. N.T. Wright points to the twofold knitting together that accompanies this verse when he says, quote, while the process of knitting together the church into a united body includes growth in love, it also includes growth on the part of the whole community of that proper understanding of the gospel, which leads to the rich blessings of settled conviction and assurance. Living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa. As truth is confirmed in practice and practice enables truth to be seen in action so to be fully grasped. So Paul's after growth in unity because of our love for one another and growth in our unity in our corporate and individual assurance and proper understanding of the gospel. You might not, you might not know this about me, but I, I have a knowledge that's, that's more than the average pastor about textiles <laughs> and fabrics. And as I've, and that phrase has just stuck out for me for months, knit together, knit together, knit together, knit together in love. It's stuck out and stuck out and stuck out. I've meditated on it a lot. And I think of it, I, I, I think of it as two different experiences we have with two different fabrics. <clears throat> fabrics of community, fabrics of connections in our spiritual family in this church. And as I picture the fabric of this community, I actually picture two really different versions of fabric. I don't want us in this community to be knit together like a loose sweater, right? You know the kind of sweater that's so chunky and loose that the wind kind of goes straight through it. You don't really understand how it's supposed to function or work. It's sort of like a net. I don't want us to be knit together like a net, right? It's made for a lot of things to go through it except fish. I don't want us to be knit together like a knit or like the blanket that you keep on your couch that has so many holes in it, it's knit so far apart that every time you try to use it, you might as well just not even use it. You should just throw it away, right? <laughs> I long for us, bear with me, I long for us to be knit together like jungle cloth. What's jungle cloth? I'm glad you asked. 
In World War II, jungle cloth was the newest technology at the time. It was the newest technology at the time for coats and jackets. So, um, so someone in the Navy would wear a Navy deck jacket where they had to be in the freezing cold waters like on, a, on the, the deck of a boat and would stand against the wind. And they didn't have the fancier fabrics that we have today. So what they had was this fabric that was woven so dense and so tightly together that it was difficult to cut it was difficult to pierce, and it was literally windproof just by feature by the by the the sheer fact of being woven so tightly together. In fact, it was woven so tightly together that water beads up on it, and it's not treated with any kind of modern water repellents that we have today. Those are the two kind of concepts I have in my mind. There's one that's flimsy and cold and can't do even what it's there to do. And then there's one that is tight and structured and dense and connected and isn't easily ripped. It isn't easily torn. It isn't easily assaulted. It isn't easily um, affected by the elements around it. And I long for us to be woven together like that. And our text paints this picture of being knit together both in our love for one another and our understanding and full assurance of the gospel and both of those things in Christ. So first, let's talk about the love part. That's the one that's more natural and easy, maybe, to say that we long to be a loving community. Those kind of go hand in hand. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be knit together in love and to and to explain some of this, I'm going to borrow from Paul again in places like 1 Corinthians 13, where he, he gives us a picture of the kinds of, thing that love, the kinds of things that love does and love doesn't do. He tells us that love, he tells us that love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy one another. Love doesn't boast. Love isn't arrogant. Love isn't rude. Love doesn't even insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And that means if we're going to achieve a tightly knit together unity, we can't envy each other. If we're going to be a tightly knit community, we can't be impatient with one another. We can't be unkind or boastful or arrogant or rude. If we want to be a tightly knit community, we can't be irritated with each other easily or resentful. Things like resentment and envy and being rude and being selfish and arrogant and unkind, treating each other that way keeps this place at a distance. It, it keeps our unity wobbly. Love doesn't get irritated. That's, that's really convicting for me like yesterday. It's hard to fake not being irritated. And man, as your flesh flares up with irritation, with loveless irritation, that's an opportunity to notice a place to grow in love. And I was convicted 
super convicted in this text this week to, to think about how our father doesn't get irritated with us. He's not impatient with us. He's not demanding with us. He isn't selfish or arrogant or unkind to us. He's the model of a loving, generous, giving, patient father. He's patient with us. He's kind to us. Love also does certain things. Love rejoices at the truth. Human beings don't analyze a situation and then make a conscious effort to rejoice. Rejoicing just springs out of what we take joy in. You automatically rejoice about what you delight in. So if you don't rejoice in the truth, let that be a blinking light for you on the dashboard of your heart and soul to to address, to ask the Spirit of God to change, to meet you there, to grow that in you. Because the truth sets us free. That's not a place that God is rubbing our nose in something. It's a place that he wants to pluck something out of your soul that's bad for you, that's hurting you and the people around you. If he exposes something true about you that's sinful or a place that needs growth or change or transformation, that is loving. That is loving. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And that's not drifting. That's not coasting. You can't endure all things by just aimlessly drifting. You can't bear pain and hardship by coasting. The drifting life caves under the weight, but love can endure it. And there's a second element to this encouragement. It's, it's being knit together in love and being knit together in knowledge and understanding. Have you ever considered that it isn't merely growth and biblical love for one another that unites and weaves us together as a Christian community, but it's also our shared understanding and knowledge. We tend to maybe separate those two things and make a false dichotomy out of things that the Bible says work together. Your love for neighbor and for your brother or sister in this room and your knowledge and understanding and assurance of the gospel are not separate. They're both essential to Christian maturity and they're both essential to unified Christian community. In fact, later in our text, when Paul praises the Colossians for their good order, he most likely is talking about their good doctrinal order, that they have the boundaries set in good places in their thinking, clear, right thinking, just as in our text last week, is essential to the maturity of a Christian. To whatever degree these believers have established pure doctrine and order, to that same degree, Paul is rejoicing Rejoicing for them and with them in that. You see, what we, what we think, get this, what you think about the gospel and about the scriptures impacts, for good or ill, the unity of this church. How deeply your faith is rooted in Christ has a direct impact on how tightly we can be knit together as a church body. As our love and learning and faith grow, we will grow more knit together. 
That's why we preach the gospel constantly. The whole counsel of God. All the good news of the gospel and God and his kingdom. For us to be united, we must share in that understanding. It's why in Philippians, Paul rebukes Yodia and Syntyche and he says, stop fighting. Stop being divided in disagreement, but actually be united in agreement in the gospel. We have more in common with other believers who share our understanding of the gospel who might live on the other side of the world than we do with people who don't share that understanding in our own homes. Paul struggles. He struggles to encourage these believers to be united in love and knowledge and understanding and all of it in Christ. Point number three, it all comes through Christ. Being knit together in love and understanding is being knit together in and through Christ. Again, the mystery's been revealed. So we don't have to go looking for some secret sauce that's going to change everything for us. We don't have to discover some secret that'll finally make our lives happy. We don't have to uncover some enigma that will give us all the answers to life's biggest question. The answer is Christ. Again, N.T. Wright says, Christ himself is the mystery of God. Not just a clue or a key to it, as though it were something other than himself, a proposition which, however true, remained abstract. Everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered. This is the force of the verse. It must be answered with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus, the Messiah. It's likely that there are some Jewish traditions that will be an ingredient to the false teaching. Paul's encountering false teaching, Paul will encounter and address false teaching throughout this book that has this ingredient to it that is Christ plus XYZ. Christ, but add this one other tradition. Christ and this other reality that we have remaining from our Jewish religion. He keeps pointing out that the mystery has been solved. In essence, Paul's preparing these people so that they know to close their ears when some teacher comes along and says, yeah, 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 I get it, Jesus is important, but you really need Jesus and. He wants them to be prepared to not listen to that. He wants them to be prepared for the lie that comes up and says, yeah, 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 I get it. There's Jesus. You need Jesus. But this other little addition is going to make you really spiritual or really mature or really grown up or really um, like super Christian. He wants to guard against that. If you think you need some remedy for your heart sickness other than Christ and his body, you don't. If you're aching for an antidote to soul affliction and you're looking somewhere other than Christ, you're looking in the wrong direction. If you think you just need some remedy or some cure, or you just have to find some way out of the jam that you're in, and it doesn't involve complete submission to Jesus Christ as Lord of everything, then you're on a wild goose chase. And I know that because of verse three, where it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we're funny, we're funny people, or maybe I'll just, I'll just speak for myself. I'm a funny, I'm a funny guy. I'll, 
I'll barely scratch the surface of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ, and then I'll get bored with them, and I'll crack open a fortune cookie and really question whether or not that advice sinks up. The truth is, is that an entire life lived completely devoted to the riches of wisdom and knowledge that Christ provides is like dipping one toe in the ocean of what's offered to us. If I spent all my waking hours contemplating Christ and his riches of wisdom and knowledge, I would die not even beginning to understand the value and the glories of Christ. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says it best when he says, we are far too easily pleased. We make mud pies with our self-help books and the satisfaction that our careers provide when what's being offered to us is a banquet at a king's table and a vacation at the ocean. That's a, that's a Mark paraphrase. The fabric of this church will be knit together by our unity in Christ and his gospel. In him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. So don't, don't be deceived. Don't let anybody delude you. Don't let anybody beguile you, the King James Version says. And that takes me to my fourth and final point this morning. We don't have to be deceived. The false teaching that these Christians are encountering is a false teaching that is replacing some aspect of salvation with something other than Christ. And I think we would be served if we notice that the things that distract from Christ, Paul calls plausible arguments. The most dangerous arguments that that we face from the world or the flesh or the devil are arguments that are used to beguile us and deceive us. The most dangerous ones that we encounter are the ones that are gonna be the closest to the truth. Maybe just one or two degrees off so that they look believable. And I don't know, I don't know which, I, I don't know what those are for the different individuals in this room. I don't know what different ideologies or concepts or thoughts. I don't know what the things are in your life that are tempting you to build on a different foundation than Christ. There's a lot of ideologies and worldly philosophies swarming around outside of the church and inside of the modern church right now. And I don't know which ones appeal to you the most, but your flesh does and the world does and the devil does. I don't know which one tempts you to build on a different foundation than Jesus. One plausible sounding argument is that you can love people without loving the truth. But the scriptures tells us that love rejoices at the truth. So if someone's demanding that you drop truth in order to love them, they're trying to delude you and beguile you. If you're being tempted to edit God's word so that it aligns with your own sensibilities better, you might be being deceived. If you're tempted to believe that you can love Jesus without obeying Jesus, then you're being deluded. If you're being tempted to add Jesus in order to find something that feels better or looks less risky, then you're being deluded. 
This is Christian maturity to grow and being able to discern Christ from all other arguments that try to replace Christ. That's learning to discern between good and evil. Do you feel like you have to be accepted by some group of friends? You don't. Are you tempted to judge God by how you feel about the Bible? You could be in danger because your feelings can delude you and they can deceive you with plausible arguments. Are you tempted to define goodness and beauty and truth outside of reference to Christ? Then you could be in big danger. God defines love. God defines truth. God defines what we should see as beautiful, not the world and not our flesh. Plausible arguments that set themselves in competition to Christ are sand and they will not hold in the day of adversity. Build your identity. Build your sense of meaning and understand your purpose in life around the gospel or else you won't be, be, be building on anything at all. Castles that are made of sand always eventually fall into the sea. Anything you build your life on other than Christ will erode, will crumble every time. Paul, my longings... I just want to reiterate quickly. My longings for us is that we would have a devotion, desire, a longing that the Holy Spirit would awaken in us a desire to have a struggle for the encouragement and maturity and the building up and edification of each other, of this spiritual family, of this body of Christ. My longing, my burden is that the Holy Spirit would knit us together in love and knit us together in knowledge and understanding and full assurance in the gospel. And all of that, all of that, we don't have to look anywhere else. It all comes through plumbing the depths of wisdom and riches that are in Christ himself. And because of that, we don't have to be deceived by anything else that's competing for our attention. And it's why, it's why we end our service oriented around communion every single week. It's why we come back to the table every single week. The way we take communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations in front, of, in front of the pulpit and then we'll have one station in the balcony and then we'll have another one over to the left that is gluten-free and single serve. And then we'll also have prayer ministers further over to the left. I'd love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. Here at Redeemer Fellowship, we welcome anybody who's a Christian to come take communion. And what we mean by that is we welcome anybody who has placed all of their faith and hope for the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that comes through Christ has placed all of their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's why we take communion every week. It's because we have to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. And we have to do that for the watching world and for each other. That's why we stare each other in the eye and we say, this is Christ's body given for you. And this is his blood shed for you. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the preeminent Christ is who we want to proclaim here over and over and over and over and over and to each other over and over and over again. So I'm going to pray for us and the musicians and the servers are going to come up, uh, are going to come forward. Would you all uh, bow your heads with me and pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you send your spirit to convict us of sin, to strengthen our faith, to transform our lives. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Christ in this room, in our hearts? Would you reorient the struggle the competitive struggle we have in our lives right now. Maybe we compete to keep up with the Joneses. Maybe we compete to hide or keep our sin hidden. And we organize our lives to have two lives, to be duplicitous and hide some addiction. Would you set us free? Would you reorient the competition in our lives that we would compete to see Christ magnified? Would we struggle like an athlete to encourage one another, to bless one another, to edify one another? Would we have real vision for real flourishing for one another, for real growth and wisdom and maturity in this place? Would you awaken that in our hearts and souls, Holy Spirit? Would you awaken it? Would we have desires and longings for one, one another that perhaps we didn't have when we got here this morning? Would we care deeply about the faith and health and growth and maturity of one another, I ask? And would you do that? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you transform us from the inside out? Would you awaken in us more love, more knowledge and understanding, a deeper understanding of the gospel that sinks deeper and unites us closer together in Christ, in strength, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.